Hello and welcome to The View from the Lane, our Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. My name is Jack Pitbrook. I'm joined again today by James Moore and Charlie Ackleshare. Um, Charlie, we are, what, two and a half weeks away almost from the resumption of the Premier League season. Uh, Tottenham presumably have returned to contact training. What What's the vibe really around Spurs at the moment? To me, it feels really positive. Um, I think the, you know, getting four pretty key players uh, who were unavailable through injury when play stopped in Sissoko, Kane, Son and Bergvine. The fact they're now all ready to go. Um, it, it feels like a bit of a fresh start. You, you know, they had, it was such a, they ended on such a downer. They could barely get an attack out. You, know, you think back to that Leipzig game and it, it was pretty bleak. And so it just feels like a bit of a lifeline. They've had some time off. I think a lot of players needed a bit of recharge. I think the Champions League final, uh, which we'll talk about, uh, you know, last year meant it was quite a, uh, like constricted off season, um, and it was one where they really needed a break to to process it. Lots of players had the World Cup before that, so yeah, it just feels like a bit of a recharge. They can come back. I think Mourinho's like raring to go. Uh, he's really, really pleased to be back with the players, um, and I think the players as well. And, and this is across the board, but you know, most of the players just you know, really wanted to get back on the training pitch, um, have a bit of a routine. So it it feels like you know everyone's been quite refreshed but I guess we'll have to see you know what that looks like when they play United in two and a half weeks. James how are you feeling about it are you, are you excited? Yeah I, I am actually quite excited now I'm, I'm quite positive about about uh, how this team could do really I mean that could obviously kind of evaporate quite quickly if uh, they defend as shambolically against Manchester United in the first game back as they have done in uh, most of the rest of the season but you know, as you said before, if you look at that team on paper with everyone fit, and obviously you've got to factor in the fact that, that that's going to be the case at most clubs as well. But it, it looks it looks a decent team. and I'm not sure it's quite fully functional and that there's an ama- amazing depth in many positions, but it, like the strongest team, there are at least like a decent number of decent players there. And, you know, they're not that far behind Manchester United in, in fifth. And we don't know quite what's going to happen to Manchester City at, at the Cass Appeal. We will probably have a better idea, but by the time the games come around, uh, so yeah, who knows? Maybe it could maybe it could be a, a fantastic mini season for Spurs. And given that two of the teams who are between them and the Champions League place at the moment are Sheffield United and Wolves, who are sides who you would expect to suffer more from the lack of fans. I think I kind of feel like there's a there's still a route to fifth place for Spurs. I feel I also I feel like this. I feel like playing without fans will benefit teams with more, you know, top level experienced players because if you are a top level experienced player, you're kind of used to playing in these kind of strange environments, European football, international football. You rely less on the kind of momentum of the crowd in a way that say Sheffield United would do. So I think Spurs are gonna I think I'm not sure they'll get it, but I think they'll definitely improve. I think they'll get close. I think I think what you say there is true, but I, I would counter that by saying that also Wolves and Sheffield United would be two teams that you would perhaps expect, particularly Wolves, because their squad is small, um, and they had European games as well. You would expect those two teams to struggle when it came to the quote unquote business end of the season, with game you know big games coming thick and fast. Whereas now obviously they've been given this prolonged break, uh, and then a kind of three weeks mini preseason, so so they'll be fresher than they otherwise would have been. So that. I wonder if that would almost counteract the, the, the potential downside they would have suffered there. That's true. But then I think that the counter to that is that it is going to be a really big test of every team physically because everyone is going to have so many games and, and there just are going to be injuries inevitably. So I feel like the squad size and squad depth will make a big difference. And and yeah, we've talked about the fact that Spurs don't have maybe a perfect squad, but you'd back their squad depth over a Sheffield United uh, and probably Wolves as well. I wonder how far into these nine games we're going to see Lucas playing up front again. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just be back to where we were after like three matches. We should do like a, um, yeah, like one of those games where everybody picks a date for when we expect to see it. I'm going to go, what, like July 1st? (laughs) A sweepstake, (laughs) yeah. July the 1st, yeah, sweepstake. How did I forget that word? Um, July the 1st would actually be really, really soon. Spurs will probably only play the game or two by then. But I, I mean, look, even the other, as you said, James, even the other day when we were doing like, what is the best Spurs 11? The fact that we were coming up with 11s that say didn't include Ndombele and Bergwijn or Winks or Sissoko, 
just goes to show that Spurs, you know, Spurs are going to have a pretty good bench. Like, they're going to have a, whatever 11 Jose comes up with, they're going to have a handful of, like, good Premier League level players on the bench. And I, I don't know if that's true of Arsenal, for example. I think it, it is true of Manchester United, but it certainly isn't of some of the other teams around them. And so, I, yeah, I think I do have, having been so, we were all so, so down on Spurs back in February and March when this, before the stoppage started. And yet now I'm kind of bullish about their chance of, of getting there. It's funny though, isn't it? Because we, we're, bulli- we're bullish about a thing that we don't really know what it, what it's going to be, right? I mean, we're talking about like <laughs> qualifying for the Champions League and we're not entirely sure like what that's going to be and how that's going to look next season. Oh, we know nothing, but that, Sorry that, to put that should stop us being bullish. <laughs> we, we don't know what's required. We don't know what the sport's going to look like, but it doesn't mean we can't make predictions. And I guess like the big, this leads us on to the next big thing that I really want to talk about today, which is, what what sort of a Harry Kane do you think we're going to see? So Charlie and our sort of stats guru, Tom Warville, wrote a fantastically comprehensive piece on Harry Kane, which launched in Athletic a few days ago, uh, looking at his evolution in the last few years. Has he got better? Has he got worse? Why isn't he scoring so many goals? All these kind of associated questions, really, really kind of digging through the data and breaking it down. And it's, it's fascinating. Um, Charlie, what sort of a Harry Kane are you expecting to see? It's, it's it's hard to know, but I think he um, he could be one of those who's really benefited from a bit of time off. I mean, he was injured anyway, um, but he's had he's played so much football. I know everyone talks about his injuries, but you know he he's had major to- two major tournaments in the last few years. Last year, he came back for the Champions League final and then played the Nations League straight after. Um, so I'm I'm hopeful that he he can be you know, more of that playing on the shoulder penalty box kind of player. Because it's interesting, we look at this, he's really been playing deeper and deeper over the last couple of years. Um, I think as well, so much of this is chicken and egg, you know, is Kane playing worse because the team doesn't function so well or does the team not function so well because, you know, Kane has been less effective. Um, So, you know, my understanding is that for Mourinho, the priority is making sure Kane can be in the box, scoring goals, making use of his world-class finishing and, you know, predatory instincts. So, you know, the team is going to be built towards getting the best out of him. And if, you know, they can find some of that functionality that was missing, has been missing for, you know, m- most of the season, really, and and the big big chunks of last season... Then I think we can see a really effective game, but it does it it will come down to how the team is performing generally, and and we worry. You know, we've talked about you know the lack of an orthodox defensive midfielder and things like that. But they've had a you know a good couple of months to try and get this right, and I th- you know maybe we're being too optimistic, but I think there's a chance that they will be you know a bit more functional than we've seen previously, and if they are. I still think Kane, I mean, even this season, we think he's been pretty disappointing by his standards. He's still scored 17 goals uh, in 25 games for Spurs. So, you know, he is still like a world-class striker and um, I'm hopeful the break would have done him good. It must be the the longest break he's had in in senior football, right? It's a prolonged period of time. And, you know, I, I know that's not to say like he's been sat on his backside resting the whole time. Obviously, he's been training hard. But mentally and physically, you definitely feel like that could make quite a big difference to him, having gone away in the summer so often, as we were talking about the other week. I mean, I, I, what I think is quite interesting is that two of his better performances came in the last sort of five or six games before that injury. If you remember the the Burnley, the home game, mm. which scored two really, really good goals, like classic Kane goals, kind of cutting in from the left, shooting with his right foot from near to the box. Two goals like that in that game, really good ones. Um and then that Brighton game on Boxing Day, where he scored one, led the line superbly, was kind of all over the pitch. It was a real kind of captain's performance on a day where, where Spurs actually played quite badly, but won. Um, and then within a week, he, he's injured and out for you know two or three months. And then obviously we get this, this kind of unprecedented stoppage. So it's not like, I think it would be unfair to suggest that he was in dreadful form when he got injured, which is kind of what, what I've seen a couple of people say. Um, I mean, you just mentioned the, the, the numbers there, Charlie. And his goal scoring this season has been good. It might not have been his usual ludicrous standard, but it's still been kind of 
over a goal uh, every two games, I think, just about. Oh, yeah, well over that. I mean, also, he, just on the, of him not having a break, we looked at the numbers and, you know, Kane, so we're told, is is often injured and this sort of thing, but he's he's averaging more than 50 games a season for the previous five seasons. So, you know, this is this is a player who has played a huge amount of football um, and was probably reaching a point where he did need uh, a bit of time off. And obviously, it's not in the ideal circumstances, but... Yeah, and those two games, James, that you mentioned, Mourinho was really fulsome in his praise after both of those performances for his all-round contribution. Um, and, and that is, you know, some, fa- some fans would like him, I think, just to be, you know, playing as a number nine, but he, he can offer a lot more. And I think we may see some of that as well, that he's, you know, less of just a, a penalty box poacher, even though that's, you know, that's a part of it. But I think we will see him linking play, um perhaps more so than we have done before as well. Do we think that he is, that the the Kane of kind of 2015, 16, 17, you know, the, the guy who would destroy centre-backs physically, he'd run in behind, he would, yeah, he'd lead the line, he'd get caught offside. That kind of Kane is kind of done. Like, we're not going to see him again for basically physical reasons. And that the Kane, you know, we are now in a kind of like Kane 3.0, who is someone who has to sit deeper and he's really really good at it and we know you know we've talked about this before how good he is in those positions but do we do we accept that the kind of original harry kane is is gone charlie to a degree yeah i mean i think the the remaining few months of this season will be revealing and talking to a couple of people who you know are in the recruitment side of football i think the view is you know let's see let's make a call at the end of the season once he's had a couple of months and if he's injury free and firing then that will be quite revealing but certainly looking at the numbers um you know how many goal non-penalty goals he's scoring per game and uh, his expected goals as well um per game you know those have fallen uh quite away since that kind of 2016-17-2017-18 peak so I think it might be that he does have to evolve and that he is evolving um but it might not necessarily mean he scores a lot fewer goals. Uh, I think he's someone whose instincts are so good uh, and his intelligence is so high that he could still remain quite prolific. But I think, yeah, he will be dropping deeper. Um, he's not going to be, as you say, running off the shoulder of the last defender as frequently as he used to do. Uh, so it'll be really interesting to see to see that over the next um, couple of months and to see whether it, it you know changes his goal scoring output uh, in a profound way because he's remained extremely consistent even as um even as his game has evolved slightly over the last couple of years and obviously we you know we there's something we've talked about this on this podcast before is how kane kane's ability to play in that deeper role i think he actually shows it off better with england than with tottenham because the england system is built around kane dropping deep and then having runners usually sterling and rashford or sterling and sancho running beyond him and Kane can play those passes through and at Spurs I kind of feel like that is the that is how Spurs will end up playing with Kane but they haven't really got there yet maybe maybe now with Lucas and Son and Bergwijn as options for, to be those runners then maybe Spurs will turn into that team although of course like Charlie says Jose does want Kane predominantly in the box um James is, is that the future you see for Kane uh, yeah, you definitely see can see how that would how that would work and that would benefit him. I mean, some of his performances for England in the last, I mean, since the World Cup really have been really really good. He's been far more involved in kind of build up play and, and little bits of kind of interplay with, with Sterling and Sancho um, and Rashford uh, than he had tended to be in the England team in the two years previous to that. Um, it, it, it just kind of felt like I mean, it's almost his like best football of the last couple of seasons. Maybe came in some of those England games. I mean, I remember obviously the Spain. Uh, away game winning them one was it three two I think three two yeah uh, and uh, I, I guess a Kos- a Kosovo game maybe was that at Southampton you're really testing my memory now um, but there's certainly games where where he he links up with those, those you know it would be two of those three players really well and you can see how Son could sort of play in a similar role and that might be the way you kind of solve that Son and Kane problem um, and yeah obviously you've got to make a decision on which of Bergvine and Lucas you're going to play, I would suggest maybe Bergvine would be slightly better suited to that. Yeah, and, and Bergvine 
uh, signed after Kane got his injury. So they haven't played together yet. So I think that will be really interesting. And also the rise of Lo Celso happened after Kane got his injury. So there, there will have been some changes to the to the Spurs side and to the balance of it, which you hope might make them a bit more functional um, for when he comes back. It's also just worth saying on on those England performances, he's, this season he's played six games for England and scored 10 goals in those six games, which is pretty phenomenal and and you can talk about the quality of opposition but you know it does mean that for club and country this season he scored 27 goals from 31 games and that's that's not a bad ratio for for any striker one other thing i wanted to mention on this is kane kane really loves playing as a number 10 like he's proud to wear the number 10 shirt he sees that as his own evolution in the game he likes playing those passes and being a creative player so i don't think he is reluctant to make that step deeper on the pitch there's one one other thing i wanted to to just get your opinion on was like to what extent do you see a similarity in kane's evolution with say for example alan shearer who used to be that kind of physically dominant player and then had injuries and had to become slightly uh you know had to had to change his game a bit and be- or, or the other one that springs to mind is wayne rooney who again used to be a kind of physically dominant center forward for a bit and then drop deeper and deeper as his career went on um again f- i mean forced in part by injuries and his changing body do you do you see a comparison to Kane in either of those two guys charlie Shearer is a really interesting one yeah and under the uh, article in the comment section both nicholas b uh and chris p and john d um talked about alan Shearer and, and those similarities uh and yeah it, it's funny with Shearer because i think for a lot of people they um, they think of him as being you know someone who would drop deep and was a, a target man and link the play up. But in, yeah, in the early part of his career, he, especially if you think back to when he was at Blackburn, he very much was a kind of play on the shoulder of the last defender, get him behind, finish. So I think that is quite a good point of comparison. And and some would say as well because they both had injuries, they they kind of had to adapt a little bit. I mean, even someone like Michael Owen who once he was slowed down by those injuries, he dropped a lot deeper and, and linked the play and showed that side of his game uh, a bit more. So I think it is something that's quite common with strikers because it is it is only so long that you can play that kind of um, poacher off the shoulder kind of way. So you do have to adapt. And I think also, you know, we've talked about it before with someone like Delhi, who uh, is quite a specific thing that he does and it's maybe not, as easy to accommodate for other teams whereas you know someone like Kane now he he wants to be a complete striker uh you know he wants to be seen in that bracket and there are a lot of there are players elsewhere in the Premier League who you know both score goals but also do a huge amount elsewhere and I think Kane he definitely has that ability um and and this is what I mean about I don't think he needs to be any less effective or even necessarily score that many fewer goals uh, even if he's playing a bit deeper. Um, you know, I think Mourinho wants him to be still scoring a lot, but also be offering loads when he's not scoring because there are going to be some games where he's shackled. And then it's about, well, can he can he link the play? Can he create the space, you know, by taking defenders away for Son? And now there's Bergwijn as well. That, that could be a really effective uh, role for him as well as the goal scoring. I think sometimes people are a little bit blinded by the the numbers of goals. And I think you see a player, and, and this is probably true of Shearer and, and maybe Rooney as well. Well, possibly not Rooney, but certainly Shearer. Um, when they see a, a striker scoring so many goals, they kind of instinctively think that that player is is like a kind of a penalty box poacher and not a, a kind of technically, you know, an intelligent and a technically gifted player who will drop off and create chances for other players as well. But... But Shearer and Kane both have that in their in their locker, and it, um, th- that would be the the I mean the biggest reason to lean more into that England system, wouldn't it? I think you're bringing in two wide forwards who you're going to be looking to to score fifteen twenty goals a season, rather than it kind of all going through one centre forward. You're going to be looking to him, you know, you're still going to want to get the goals out of Kane, but you're also going to be looking to those wide players and think and saying, you've got to make a, a big contribution too. And it might also mean there is less of an obsession around if and when Kane does pick up an injury, there is more confidence in other players to kind of take on that goal-scoring burden. Whereas there has been a situation, hasn't there, where when Kane's got injured, it has been like, who's going to score? And, and you know, Son has, has stepped up um, and others have as well. But 
yeah, it might feel like a bit more of a sustainable system than relying on Kane to score kind of fifty odd goals uh, <laughs> every campaign, which is which is a huge amount for any player. And of course, one other thing that Kane is is fantastically good at, I think he's one of the best around at it, is like uh, you know if some if Larissa or whoever hits the ball long, Kane's ability to control the ball in the opposition half and then and take it down and bring others into play is fantastic. And, um, you know, given how direct Mourinho wants Tottenham to play at times, and he, they've basically been unable to do that with Lucas, or even with, frankly, with Son up front in, you know, back in January, February, March, after Kane's hamstring injury. So I'm hoping that Kane's, you know, regardless of what, you know, how many goals he scores, I'm hoping that Kane's return to the team will give Spurs a little bit more control and able to get up the pitch a bit more there's one other thing I want to I want to bring on to in I want to mention on Kane before we move on and that is in the past Kane has not always started especially well after a break you know much was made of his inability to score in August and clearly like physically he's a player who takes a few games to get up to speed so James we should we expect Kane to to have a slow start or do you think he might hit the ground running it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because we've never really, we've never really seen a situation before. I'm not sure it's quite, quite the same as, uh, as kind of starting a season in August. I mean, as we were saying before, obviously he's had quite a long break this time around, longer than he ever would have had before. So there's an argument he should sort of be fresh, but whether he's sharp is a different question. We also don't think he's got a great record against Manchester United, really, either. So uh, yeah, maybe that's a factor as well, but. Um, uh, it, you know, it, assuming he's fit for the nine games, which perhaps is a bit of a, a leap, um, I'd be pretty confident of him getting sort of half a dozen plus goals. On on our list of who assisted Kane, you've got you know luminaries like Christian Eriksen, Deli Ali, um, Son Heung Min, and then there's F Lesniak with one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, who has his. He has as many assists for Kane in the Premier League as Dyer, Dembele, Chadley, Aurier. Um, yeah, not a name that necessarily you'd think in yeah, such exalted on, company. He, he played one game, time. didn't he? Yeah, last 15, minute, 15, 20 minutes against Leicester in uh, 2016-17 and set up mm. one of Kane's three, four goals in that game and Spurs won 6-1. When, that was when they finished the season, wasn't it, with like 7-1 and 6-1 wins? Yeah, 6-1, 6-1 at Leicester, 7-1 at Hull. Yeah. And then what happened to him? That was his only game. Harry Kane or, or Lesniak? <laughs> he, he uh he got sold at the end of the season. He's currently uh playing for AAB in the Danish Superliga. Uh but no, he's actually on loan at Silkeborg IF. Uh I don't know anything about Danish football, so I would love to know more about what he's doing. I'm just on his Wikipedia page now. So it turns out that he is the nephew of West Bromwich Albion legend Jan Kozak, uh oh, current really? Slovan Bratislava manager. Um, wow! So he he um, must have one yeah. of the best ratio like assists per minute in uh in Spurs history. Jamie Slabber, I think, came on in a game against Liverpool in uh, met two thousand and two, maybe. That I think Spurs lost three two at White Hart Lane, and I think I think he set up a goal for Teddy Sheringham. This uh, I I will put myself out there to be corrected, but I think that's the case. And if that is correct, he may have a similar. Wow. Sure. Okay. Who's That's... that? Jamie Slabber. Jamie Slabber. Never heard of him. What se- what season? Two thousand and one two. Yeah, one two maybe. Are we are we really like live checking now? <laughs> yeah, why not? <laughs> two three. Yeah. Okay. So he so Slabber that game got eleven minutes. <laughs> was there a was there a Spurs goal in those eleven minutes? That's going to be the first thing. <laughs> Good question. Yes, there was. Sheringham did score in uh, eight minutes after Slabber came on. Okay, so he played 11 minutes, and if we're saying he got that assist, so then it's whether Lesniak played more minutes. Lesniak only played four minutes. Oh, okay, fine. Wow. It all slipped through Jamie Slabber's fingers again. Yeah. Wow, what a roller coaster of emotions. Yeah, it really was. <laughs> Can we maybe put some music underneath this to make it a bit more exciting? <laughs> Coming up next week on the podcast will be... Uh, Philip Lesniak versus Jamie Slaber. We'll do a yeah. Full finally, game. finally, yeah. We can, <laughs> that can really answer one. that question. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, that was an interesting diversion. Um, we are gonna, now going to get on to some slightly more prominent Tottenham players. Uh, Charlie, this is a piece that you've done on who is Spurs' best overseas player of the century, is it, since 2000? Yeah. And there's a lot of good options here, uh, but tell us who you've gone for as your choice. Well, Philip Lesniak was obviously, <laughs> you know, a, a big contender, but I... Philip the ratio, Lesniak. Yeah, he's like the Tim Sherwood. He's got the best ratio. Um, <laughs> and, and I think Lesniak, you know, he, he always refers to that. But no, I, uh, well, it's very, very difficult, but I whittled it down to six. And I'm going to make the case now for Moussa Dembele, who um, I just feel from the way you hear players talk about him and managers. Uh, and just the aura, the mystique about him. To me, there's something very special about that. Um, the fact that he was kind of chopped down in his prime by injuries adds to the, the sense of what might have been. And you just think to how good he was uh, in that, especially that 16-17 uh, season, 17-18. I mean, think of that Juve game away where he just absolutely bossed it, had Kadira looking like he was playing a different sport. Um, yeah, Eric Dyer saying physically he's a monster, but he's got ballerina's feet. I mean, he just lifted that whole team, and it, and that was the really peak Pochettino team. So I think if you're, you know, talking about the best Tottenham team of the of of that period, which which that undoubtedly was, uh, and he was such a key part of that, he really lifted them. And you know, you talk about how good a player is. You know, often a player has the best game when they're not playing, and you've seen how much. Tottenham have suffered without him despite some really stiff competition we'll, we'll talk about his competitors and and you know you guys will make the case for some some other uh, alternatives but yeah you know Pochettino calling him a genius comparing him to Ronaldinho and Maradona uh, I just think the level he hit at Tottenham was was so spectacular and, and he really lifted others around him as well and and he's just been so missed so yeah for me just about uh, Moussa Dembele yeah, I mean, that, that Juve game was a, an unbelievable performance and it came like smack in the middle of a run that he had where he like Spurs played against all of the top sides in the Premier League, uh, you know, Manchester United and Arsenal, uh, Liverpool, and he had incredible games in all of those matches. Juventus as well in the Champions League. And it all kind of looked like you know, Spurs went on a really good run and it kind of felt like this season was kind of coming to a head and incredible things could happen and he was really at the centre of it. He was incredible. And it all sort of petered out as, as we kind of got into April, May. Uh, he couldn't quite sustain it, which I guess is is probably sort of symptomatic of those injuries, really. Uh, and yeah, and the, the first half of the next season, he wasn't quite the same. And then he was gone by January. And, you know, as you say, Spurs missed him. But really, I think they missed him for longer than... Uh, for longer than just those, like, well, for longer than the the year and the bit that he's been gone, probably for for two years, really, because he wasn't quite at the same level in the first half of last season either, really, unfortunately. He nearly left six months before he actually left, right? Like, he nearly left in the summer, towards the end of the summer of 2018. Uh, I think he had offers from Italy and China, and then for whatever reason, it didn't quite work out. So he kind of stuck around for the extra six months. But it's, it's a shame because he... Given how good he was, it does make you think that he could have been even better. Like it's interesting hearing. I remember, I remember hearing Pochettino say about him that Pochettino was saying, oh, "If only I'd I had started working with him when he was younger," because obviously, you know, by the Dembele had been around a bit by the time Pochettino showed up in 2014, and even when he did show up in 2014, it wasn't really for another year or two that he kind of became the player that he then became. Like at the start of the Pochettino era. He was one of those players over whom there was a question mark. Like he wasn't even a guaranteed first choice player, um, and yet he then turned into this like incredible player, like who I I can't really. He's not a player for whom there are that many obvious comparisons because he's kind of moved around the pitch a bit. Obviously at Fulham and at AZ Alkmaar, he played further forward. He's got this kind of unique skill set, like like that dire quote you referenced, Charlie, of kind of physical physical strength balance. Um, also close control, technical skill. It's, he's an, ama- an amazing footballer, and like you say, like all the all the Spurs. Ask any Spurs player from the last ten years who the best player that was in training, and they'll all say Dembele. So yeah, he was an he was a genius. There's there's a video on YouTube of the goals he scored for Alkmaar in the season they won the title under Van Hal, 
uh, and I think he scored like like ten goals over the course of the season, which is how many he scored in like like seven eight years for Spurs. But the goals he scored just, just seemed really incongruous with the player that we saw at Spurs. It's really weird to see him like putting the ball in the back of the net. <laughs> it's actually like quite uncomfortable to watch. You just you just don't expect it. You don't think it should happen. That's the thing because you know Dembele he didn't really score or create goals. You know it was like that just wasn't. It was like that was beneath him almost. Um, like he, he did have, as Jack says, he has such a unique skill set that almost couldn't be measured by such like base metrics. I've never seen a player as good as he was at just holding onto the ball under pressure. And that mm. might sound obvious, but if you want to play the way that Pochettino had Spurs playing with everybody like incredibly organised and regimented, both with and without the ball, you need someone who can hold onto the ball so that the rest of your teammates can get into position. And that's what he gave Spurs. And when you know you take him out of the team and you've got Winks and Zisoko, who are both good at what they do, you can't control, you, you know, those guys can't control, can't do what Dembele does because nobody can. And then all of a sudden, they're kind of frantic and they're trying to move the ball on too quickly and then your teammates can't get into position and the whole structure of the team collapses. Like Dembele gave the, provided the structure to the whole team basically because he could, he could allow people to get into position. Um, and that was his, that was his genius. I also love that moment where Pochino said that the, um, the four players who his 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 kind of five favorite ever players to work with in his whole career as a player and manager, and they were Dembele, Diego Maradona, Ronaldinho, and can you guys name the other two? Ah, uh, is it JJ Acocha? Yeah, JJ Acocha, yes. and then oh yes, uh, Ivan de la Pena. Correct. Yeah, good. That's good. Ivan de la Pena. Yeah, that would have been quite. I a thought it was going to be like Ricky Lambert or someone. um okay so yeah Dembele amazing player uh James who have you got we don't know this do we you you haven't no this is exciting this is a world exclusive so uh, I've been thinking about this a lot and uh I having said all that about Dembele I've I've gone with Luka Modric uh and the primary reason for that is that I I think I, if he's just, I, and I, this is maybe a strange reason to consider someone the best, the best overseas player at Tottenham, is that subsequent to being at Tottenham, he clearly showed himself to be one of the best players in world football, and you know, uh, winning winning the Ballon d'Or and doing so well at that World Cup in 2018, winning countless European Cups. How many is he? I think four, five, four, mm. however many. You can count them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can't. Well, well, we don't know really. <laughs> uh, it was, you know, just an absolutely fantastic footballer, so good to watch. Yeah. And similar to Dembele in that scoring goals or assisting was kind of beneath him. But he was doing this in an era where people probably weren't quite ready to accept that was the case. Um, you know, with Dembele, I think people have kind of got used to the idea that there would be players in the team who could kind of who could kind of run the team and set the tempo without actually having those numbers on their uh, on their kind of tally. It's quite interesting, James, on that. When I was researching this this article, I was looking at um, kind of pieces about Modric from around 2010, 11, that period where he was morphing into this incredible, you know, deep lying central midfielder. And there was an article comparing him in 2010 to Nasri and Arshavin, who now, I mean, certainly Arshavin and him just feel like totally different players. But at that point, it was still, and it was, you know, listing out their goals and assists. Um, because it was still at that time where that was kind of the only way to measure a midfielder's contribution. And, and you know, don't forget, he he played out on the left quite a lot in that first season as well. And it was only mm. after he got an injury at the start of his second season that he came back into the team uh, in central midfield. And there were a lot of people who wanted uh, Tom Huddleston and Wilson Palacios to be the central midfield pairing and to Modric to sort of just kind of make way. Because he was signed as like a flighty winger, wasn't he? That was my memory of him when. Yeah, when I think the deal he, was I done. think he was more of a sort of traditional number ten, more more of a sort of attack. You know, he played sort of just off to one side in, in an attacking midfield role rather than mm. as a sort of deep line player. Right. Yeah. 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 He's kind of almost became the archetypal. You know, I, I'm sure Javi, I guess, would have something to say about that. But there are many players who could kind of who could rival him in, in the modern era, I think, in that role. Um, and I think in Premier League terms, he probably was the first. And I, I would say that he probably set the standard and, and probably opened a few who was eyes to what a player like that could do. And, you know, I think you could make an... And I'm not saying this is necessarily true, but if you're putting me on the spot and you want me to make a good argument for a podcast, <laughs> I would say without Luka Modric, you couldn't have Moussa Dembele. Moussa Dembele would have been a centre-forward like he was at Fulham and uh, Alkmaar. 
I remember speaking to Jamie O'Hara about this a while ago, and he said that the amazing thing that stood out to him about Modric was his calves. He said he had calves like bricks. It was kind of making <laughs> the point that even though he was this little, skinny little guy, who you know he showed up in he showed up at Spurs training, and he was his balance and strength and ability to to kind of shake people off and hold on to the ball was because of his yeah his famously big calves. Uh, which is some, it's, the, it's the kind of thing that you only learn if you talk to a footballer. Like that would never have occurred to me at all. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously he was he was a fantastic player. Who and I kind of a shame that Spurs saw you know Spurs obviously got a lot of good a lot of great football out of him. But then he's went he's gone on to be better and better and better for Real Madrid. Um, and he left. You know, it would have been nice if he'd stayed at Spurs a bit longer. But anyway, uh, my my suggestion for Spurs best overseas player of the last 20 years, is Christian Eriksen. Uh, now, I know that Eriksen has just left Spurs six months ago, and some Spurs fans maybe aren't happy with with that or with his performances in the last last year, 18 months of his time at Spurs. But I do think over the course of his sort of six-ish years at the club, in terms of consistency, high quality, giving, giving like, elevating the level of Spurs' play, he was really unmatchable. Like he allowed Spurs to reach a new level of, of kind of high quality passing football. His ability to find space, find opponents—sorry, sorry, find teammates rather—be um, the connection between the mid, the the different phases of play for Spurs was kind of unmatched. Like I know, obviously, Modric was fantastically brilliant, but then I kind of feel like Eriksen was maybe more. I feel like the the, the team was better with Eriksen in. Not that it's a, you know it's not a competition between the two of them, except for the purposes of this podcast segment. Um, <laughs> uh, and you know he also provided big moments. Like he wasn't just a kind of consistency guy. He scored great goals against big teams. You know, fantastic against Chelsea, Juventus, Manchester United. Um, yeah, I think he was he was a big game player. He was consistent. He really really changed how Spurs could play. Um, and I think he's probably he would probably be my pick. Although I actually imagine I kind of think that De- I, I I I think that Dembele. And this is not a criticism of Dembele at all. Dembele is one of those players who has become cool since like in recent years. If you know what I mean, like since he was he kind of that only became he only became popular with people who don't watch Spurs towards the end of his time at Spurs. Um, is my perception, and I'm sure he sort of went like, mainstream. You mean he went yeah he went mainstream. Uh, towards the end of his time at Spurs. I remember there was like a glut of newspaper pieces about, oh, wow, this guy Dembele is amazing. But like in like 2017, 18, when he was really, really good, but he had been good like the previous season. And even when he was like obviously coming to the end of his time at Spurs, there was a lot of like, oh, God, get a load of this guy. He's brilliant. Um, which is always the way with good players. Like they always get appreciated last by, you know, people who don't watch them that much. But I feel like because Dembele has like had this like late surge of popularity and fame as or rather of recognition uh i feel like kind of kind of feel like people kind of down on ericsson for his last year or so at spurs so i feel like dembele is more likely than ericsson to win this vote but my personal vote would probably be for ericsson over dembele consistency wise i do think ericsson is it's tough to beat him for that like he his performances for a number of years probably like five years i'd say from like 14 to 9 2014 to 2019 uh, he was very, very good consistently, and as you say, hit ridiculous highs. You know, City away winner, goals against United, bossing it against Chelsea, two seasons running. Um, and yeah, and as Jack says, there is a poll in this article, so you can have your say, and we will see which out of me, Jack, and James is definitively correct on this topic. He's kind of different to those other two in that he he does have the he does have the numbers, doesn't it, to to kind of back it up, which you would kind of expect. He really. Like hasn't hit the ground running into at all, and you do kind of think, well, <laughs> is he actually on the downward curve? I mean, who knows? I, clearly, he's a massively talented player, uh, but yeah, it yeah, it, it was unfortunate that uh, in in essence, that he couldn't be sold a bit earlier, really, because I think that would have served everyone much better. Yeah, I certainly agree with that, and I also you make an important point about numbers, like Ericsson, in, ter- in terms of chances created and assists and big chances created and all, all that stuff from his, certainly from the last few, his last few years at Spurs, he was as good as anyone in the league, like as good as anyone, you know, right up there with Kevin De Bruyne and David Silver. And this is something that we've written about a fair bit. So the, the numbers certainly are there. But yeah, I think you are right that like a lot of 
like a lot of Spurs players, he suffered from maybe staying a bit too long. Maybe, you know, like a lot of them. Maybe if he'd gone six months before he did, maybe if he'd gone to Manchester United for massive money. I mean, I'm sure people wouldn't have been happy with that, but it probably would have it would have been better, I think, for all parties concerned, rather than this kind of slightly sad hanging around for six months and then going to not really a sort of top, top, top club for not a huge amount of money uh, and nobody really massively wins. Uh so and also, I'm slightly surprised to say we've managed to get through this whole segment without doing any kind of banter about and G Janssen and Kudu, Stambouli, Holtby, um, or any Fazio. of those guys, which I was surprised about because I was actually really up for like throwing in a kind of <laughs> banter suggestion of Benjamin Stambouli, which is exactly the kind of like bad jokes that I do all the time on Twitter. I guess we got a fair bit of that out of the way with all the Lesniak slabber debate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess the the Lesniak segment was the kind of banter segment of this week. Uh, also, we haven't <laughs> not, done not anything... to signpost it too heavily. But... <laughs> yeah. After the, the 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 huge success of last week's North London pubs section, we've managed to get through today with no pub banter at all. So um, I don't really know. I don't even know where that leaves us. Charlie, there's someone who actually lives in North London, unlike the other two of us. You must have some input onto this topic. What best pubs in North London? I mean, North London's such a big area as well. Um, you know, obviously you've got like, where I am is more Finsbury Park. Uh, I'm trying to think what the best pub in Finsbury Park. I mean, you used to live there, Jack, didn't you? Where was your... Uh, so I lived, I lived near the Old Dairy, which I really liked. Yeah, I, I prefer the Stapleton out of those, out of the, again, like the... Stapleton um, is nice. It's like the Lesniak slabber debate, isn't it? Everyone, <laughs> everyone has everyone has a favourite, and I'd probably go Stapleton out of those two. Fulton um, fullback is good, but gets so busy. Yeah, so busy. It, it does a pub quiz as well, which is uh, quite good. That one, that pub is one of those pubs that just has like such a sort of reputation that it's just sort of pointless going there. Do you know what I mean? There are too like, many I people. In, yeah, basically, yeah. So I live in well, obviously not at the moment, clearly. But uh, so I live in Wandsworth, and there's this pub called the Ship right on the river, which is just massively popular with all the sort of uh, oh god, yeah, it's awful rugby sorts, which is, is clearly abysmal. Uh, and if like <laughs> you know, if if the sun even comes out a tiny little bit, like any point between sort of mid and, and again not currently, but in general, uh, kind of from mid March through to sort of maybe late September, it, it's just all sort of you know pastel coloured rugby shirts and whatever else and oh, just dreadful dreadful i mean if, you, if you're not if you're broadening north london out i mean you know areas like Hampstead i'm not broadening and north london out to wandsworth by the way just <laughs> no 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 uh, not that far but yeah if you're looking kind of that Hampstead, you know if you're at walk on Hampstead heath uh somewhere like the Hollybush or spaniards uh those are really nice like historic feeling pubs Moving on to the last segment of today's podcast, which is one year ago today, that is Monday, uh, was the Champions League final. Now, obviously, we touched on this slightly when we talked about the Ajax oral history that we did a few weeks ago. But there's a lot of, been a lot of talk on social media about this today, the the, the final in Madrid. Um, and what a huge moment it was in Tottenham's history. Like, obviously, it was the, you know, it was a, it was kind of the end of the Pochettino era. It was a chance at a level of kind of glory that the club had never really reached before and who knows if they will do again. Um, James, you must have an awful lot of emotions about it. How do you how do you look back one year on? Yeah, it was kind of like a, an out-of-body experience, really. I, I still, I mean, genuinely don't think like a year on that I still actually appreciate what, what it was and what happened. Um, yeah, it's just all quite strange. I think, I, I think a couple of people have said this on Twitter, but that month between... The, the second leg of the semi-final and the final was like the, the best month of supporting Spurs ever because there was no sort of, there was no negative. There was nothing to worry about. There was this one uh, league game against Everton, which is sort of a free hit and, and it's kind of needed to avoid like a ludicrous uh, goal difference swing over uh, against Arsenal over the two games in the last game of the season. But it really, it was just kind of a bit of a party. And then there was three weeks between that and the final where, you could just kind of relax and kind of soak it up and enjoy it and think about the trip and everything else and how how important and how big a game it was. You know, and the fact that everyone around the world would be watching this game and it involved Spurs. Uh, it's kind of ludicrous when you think back to some of the abject shites that we saw in the in the 90s in particular. Um, and so for, for fans of, of my sort of generation, sort of pe- people that started kind of going early mid-90s that like, the idea that Spurs could be playing in the in the European Cup final was just uh, just fucking stupid, really. It was just stupid. 
so yeah, I, I, I still, even now, I still can't quite sort of contextualize that accurately in my mind because it uh, it kind of felt like because Spurs were playing in it, it was sort of a different thing. It didn't feel like it, it didn't feel like you know four years on from Barcelona playing Juventus. Say it kind of felt like a completely different thing, and I guess partly that's because it was Liverpool and it was another Premier League team. It, it doesn't feel quite as exotic, I guess, obviously. Um, but yeah, it was, a, it was a very strange kind of few days, and it, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, in, in classic Spurs fashion, obviously, they, they give away a penalty after sort of whatever it was 28 seconds, and then sort of huff and puff about really creating too many good chances, and, and they're never really in the game. Um, but, it, you know, I, I don't want to say that doesn't matter because obviously it does and it would have been much better to have won, clearly. But um, I don't think it kind of should detract from the whole experience of that whole run, like right back to, you know, losing the first two group stage games, I think drawing the third uh, in, uh, who was that, Eindhoven, um, and then having to come back and get a point at uh, Camp Nou and coming from behind to get that and then, you know, going through against Dortmund and City and Ajax. It's, an, it's a ludicrous run. I don't think you could say, you know, it wasn't one of those ones where someone got to the final having not really played anyone good. And, and I don't want to do sort of uh, Monaco and Porto with this service, but I kind of think that's what happened when they play each other. I mean, I know, mm. I guess, suppose Porto beat Man United, didn't they? Who did Monaco beat? Real Madrid. Okay, they beat Real Madrid and Chelsea. Okay, fine. Disregard what I said because that's absolute nonsense, clearly. <laughs> uh, you know, sometimes teams get to finals and you feel like they haven't really played anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, now I'm struggling. So, like when United uh, beat Chelsea, can, can I give you Cardiff in the 2008 semis? FA Cup instead? Or I'll Card- give you. I think the- Cardiff. They might not have played a Premier League team. It was. It was certainly strange from a sort of journalistic perspective, with having Spurs feeling like the centre of the football universe for that yeah. for that month. They, I completely understand what James is saying, and I totally agree with it. Like there was this amazing buzz around the club, and there was so much. You know, there were obviously an awful lot of media opportunities. Um, I remember interviewing Sissoko to talk about his, you know, his kind of turnaround because he was one of the heroes of that run, obviously having been so good against against City and Ajax. And then a few of us, so me and I think three others, spent like an hour talking to Pochettino. Uh, this would have been in the middle of that week, I think a few days before they flew out, talking about his um, all his motivational techniques, like getting players to walk across coals, getting players to snap arrows with their necks staying at Spurs Lodge and then all this talk about like universal energy and all that kind of like Pochettino kind of mysticism spirituality type stuff and it you know it's it's sad because it didn't work and they lost and Pochettino was sacked soon after but at the time it was really compelling really really compelling to hear this manager who was at you know at the absolute peak of his fame and his powers then like he had worked a miracle getting spurs to the champions league felt like a miracle champions league final felt like a miracle because of how of how they'd done it and there was such this sense of of optimism and buzz although of course with retrospect in retrospect we know that it was it was the end of it was the end of pochettino um one so one, one interesting thing for those pochettino quotes that sorry the pochettino interview he did with dave heighton of the guardian that we published last week is he said he thought spurs were really good in the final um Charlie, do you agree? It's difficult as well, isn't it? Because Liverpool were ahead for almost all of it. So, you know, naturally there was a period in which Liverpool sat deeper and Spurs came onto them. And and there was a period in the second half, uh, perhaps, where, you know, Spurs had a couple of chances. But I never really thought it was a great Tottenham performance. Um, you know, that was my impression. Um, yeah, I, I don't think they fully did themselves justice. Um so I can see why from his point of view, he might feel that because Liverpool also weren't particularly good. It was by no means a vintage Liverpool performance. But my impression was that when you're defending a lead for, you know, 88, 89 minutes, there, there is an extent to which that can happen. And, you know, you do play slightly within yourself. And, and Liverpool are masters at doing that, aren't they? You know, they, they will, they often win games where you leave it thinking they didn't even really play all that well. So to me, it felt more controlled than than as if they were kind of really up against it. I mean, basically, it was a bad final, wasn't it? I think that was the take from from everyone who wasn't partial. Um, But I would say, and to sort of borrow from uh, Ron Atkinson, which obviously you have to be careful when you do that, uh, Alisson got mad of the match for Liverpool, right? So Spurs can't have been that bad. 
the one thing that people point to as being like a defense of Spurs' performance is that you know the Spurs had a lot of like one on ones, two on twos, and it was only really Van Dijk and Allison being so impeccable that meant they didn't get through. And if Van Dijk or Allison had slipped or made a mistake or not been quite so good, then Spurs might have got in there and scored. So as you know, as always in these games, it is fine margins, but I didn't get the imp- I didn't come away with the impression that Spurs had had really seized control of the game, which of course is what um, you know is what everybody was hoping for in the final. Uh, James, this is—I don't mean this to sound mean, but do you do you get sad? When this <laughs> Sorry, my man City have never been in a Champions League final, so don't worry. It's about true, in, indeed they haven't. Uh, do you get sad? Sorry, this is a very leading question. Do you get sad feeling <laughs> like Spurs are not going to get in the Champions League final again for a while? Fucking hell, Jesus Christ! <laughs> um, just how sad do you get, James? <laughs> yeah, just yeah, yeah. about that. <laughs> I can see how you work as a journalist now. I'm getting a much better insight. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, the, obviously the big obstacle is the fact that Spurs have got a kind of a bit of a an uphill battle to get back into the Champions League first time around, uh, this time around, I should say. So if they're not if they're not in next season, however that looks, then obviously it could be a little bit more difficult to get back in next time. Um, uh, but, but I mean, to, to be honest, no, not really. I kind of feel like, you know, I've kind of done the Champions League now with Spurs. I don't, you know, I would obviously love them to be in it and to win it every season. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I would probably rather they won the FA Cup than got to another Champions League final and lost, I think, maybe. I don't know. I, I Really? Wow. I think so. That's what I see him win something, mate. Mm. Sorry, about I, know, I know that's a bit sort of, uh, you know, man on the street, but... Um, would you rather you'd rather win the League Cup than get to Champions League final? Uh, I mean, I think I said FA Cup, didn't I? Yeah, but that, but I mean, like FA Cup has some prestige, but yeah. No, I've seen I've said I've seen him win the League Cup, so I, I, it's not that I don't care about that, but I care about it that much less. I've not seen him win the FA Cup; that was before my time, so I'd be. I've not even seen him play in the FA Cup final, so that I, I would prefer that. Here's a suggestion. 2021 Europa League final in Seville, that would be really really cool. It's first yeah, that'd be Europa great. That'd be great. Uh, Seville's yeah, against place. like um, you know Zimbabwe Chisinau or something like that. Ideally, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gornik Yeah, perfect. Uh, cool. So we've been talking forever, so we should probably stop talking now. Um, but thank you very much, James, Charlie, Tom. Um, thank you very much, listeners. If you've got any takes on. Slabber versus Philip Lesniak. Please tweet us or North London pubs or things we should talk about next week as we get closer and closer to the resumption of the Premier League season. Uh, anything you suggest, we'll try and take into account when we plan next week's episode. And we look forward to being back in your ears next week. Mm-hmm.